0: The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success.
1: The men beat on the drums. Hello, and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My guest today is Sophie Lewis, and in today's episode, we discussed the US Supreme Court's decision to reverse Roe v. Wade. We talked about why millions of Americans already lived in a post-Roe situation, with abortion services made punitively difficult to access. We also talked about the weaknesses of the original Roe v. Wade ruling, whether the Supreme Court's decision may herald a breakdown in support for American institutions amongst American liberals, and we also discussed Sophie's article in The Nation, in which she argued that we should not shy away from thinking of abortion as an act of killing but should instead see it as an act of violence that is entirely appropriate, regardless of the circumstances, since no one should surrender their bodily autonomy and be coerced into performing care work. Sophie Lewis is a feminist theorist based in Philadelphia, where she teaches at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Her first book was Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, and her essays have appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, Boston Review, the London Review of Books, and Salvage, amongst many other venues. Her forthcoming book is Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation. So we're speaking a few days after the US Supreme Court overruled the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which is generally described as a ruling that protects the right to abortion, although more precisely it's it's a ruling on privacy relating to Rights under the 14th Amendment and and Roe affirmed the right of pregnant women to make a private decision with a doctor concerning the embryo that they're carrying. The Supreme Court also overruled the uh, later case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which had partially reaffirmed Roe versus Wade while effectively also making some concessions to the anti-abortion position. Rightly, there's been an outpouring of anger and and sadness at the overturning of Roe. But the decision, of course, does not mean that the US is moving away from a situation where abortion was free and easily accessible across the country. And indeed, you wrote an article for Salvage Journal published before the ruling in which you wrote that much of the South has been living in a post-Roe reality for years. So what did the status quo ante look like and, and how did abortion rights vary by state?
0: Thanks. That's a great opening question. I don't want to dodge it at all. I'll answer it as best as I can. But I, I have to confess that there are much better people, you know, than I in terms of the ability, the sheer ability to understand the arcane sort of legal thicket, right, that has, that has created the abortion deserts in the South that I base my statement. Which is not really mine, obviously. That the the much of the South has been living in a post Roe reality for years. It's it's really purposefully. It's been designed to be very difficult to explain or understand why it is that, you know, in much of the United States, it's been as good as banned. Right, abortion has been as good as. It might as well be formally banned. And that's been the case for so long. I'm a fairly theoretical person and I, I try and involve myself, you know, when I can in in organising, but the legal frontier, and I'm very grateful for the people, you know, diversity of tactics, the the, the many sort of legal, radical, often sex worker-led organisations sort of fighting the de facto sort of like, illegality via all kinds of loopholes and so-called undue burden provisions and you know trap laws um, they're called, and this is how the right and all their sort of funding bodies designed it, you know, provisions that make it de facto impossible for abortion clinics to function because it's just too difficult because, for example, an abortion doctor has to have, you know, admitting privileges in a local hospital and you can, and you cannot get those admitting privileges and therefore the, the clinic can't function, etc, etc, etc. So it's really difficult to, to give a clean answer to your question, but in much of the United States, abortion has been as good as not available for for decades. Um, In 1980, the Hyde Amendment took effect, which is a legislative provision and a a victory for the anti-abortion right that bars the use of federal funds to pay for abortion, except in very limited circumstances. So, you know, as you say, the original sort of you know victory of Roe in in the seventies was you know supposedly well as I just called it a victory, but it was a pyrrhic one in a way, and it it was a privacy provision. You know, even the sort of liberal justices, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and so on, were fairly disgusted with it and thought it was actually possibly quite a bad precedent. You know, it should have been a sex equality provision, I believe RBG said. Instead, it was this, uh, as you said, you know, privacy ruling to do with a, you know, sort of almost like a family's personal decision with a healthcare provider. And then it got further diluted, first with the Hyde Amendment in 1980, and then with the KC decision in, in 92, which you also referred to. So it's just been a joke for a long time. So, for many people fighting uh, for reproductive justice in the U.S., this latest sort of Dobbs ruling overturning Roe was, you know, not just not a surprise and absolutely expected and known to be in the pipeline for some time, but also almost concretely, even
1: prior to the to the leaking of the opinion.
0: Oh yeah, even prior to the leaking. It was, I think, for many people on the ground, almost known, almost a certainty that Roe was going to be overturned at some point in the in the last, you know, five years or something. And not only that, but in a way, it doesn't necessarily even change that much grim as that is for some people in some in some locations.
1: What is your sense in places where it is having a, a substantial impact right now? Because obviously more than 20 states had prepared legislation, these so-called trigger laws that were designed to go into immediate effect if Roe was repealed. There were also uh, states with some pre-Roe versus Wade abortion bans on their statute books. So what's your sense of the immediate impact of the ruling in the days since uh, the ruling came into effect?
0: Well, so much as, and I, I do want to sort of almost shoehorn this this reflection in here, the, You know, much as the anti-trans laws of the last couple of months created panic, uh, you know, very rational fear, terror and exodus sometimes when, when financially possible for, you know, in that case, parents of, of trans children. You know, the, the Dobbs ruling, I, I do want to, you know, the reason I want to sort of bring that up as well is is that, you know, I, th- I think some people want to resist the idea that the legislative assault of the right uh, or the Christo-fascist uh, and right-wing sort of forces in the U.S., on bodily autonomy you know should be considered as as having begun with the anti trans moves of earlier this year but i think it's really important you know to insist on that so much as that you know many of the same places have have reacted with terror and all the sort of bodily autonomy type ngos and uh, organizations and grassroots organizers have their hands full with that stuff on top of that now there is this you know new reality in which people with ectopic pregnancies will not necessarily, or in fact, in many places, you know, will actually not be able to to get care, (laughs) because the treatment for an ectopic pregnancy is an abortion. And these trigger laws have literally made it you know, extremely dangerous for healthcare providers, even to to basically save the life of someone who has an ectopic pregnancy, right? I mean,
1: this is in a country which already has very high levels of maternal mortality, of course,
0: absolutely astronomical rates of especially black uh, maternal mortality. Yes, exactly. So, you know, what's my sense of the immediate consequences? Well, you know, it's... Uh, I'd love to say that there's been an immediate sort of outpouring of of militancy. To an extent, I think we are seeing some signs. You know, my hope is that there's a sort of brewing new era of mass movement and mass struggle. To an extent, I think there's also a lot of, you know, shock even despite the sort of lack of surprise you know it's you know psychology is complicated it it makes complete sense to be outraged even if you you know you knew it was coming there's something very material about a symbolic shift right even in a state where abortion remains legal and that ex- accessible for now. Although, of course, you know, they're moving in the direction of, 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 of getting a federal abortion ban, right? But, but even in a state like Pennsylvania, where I live, you know, if you have a cervix and you're out in the world on the day where the Supreme Court just said people must, yeah, must perform forced gestation, gestation it feels materially different on that day. You know, to be, to be out in the world. And when you see a billboard, as I saw on that day, to my surprise, massive billboard above a freeway saying abortion remains legal in Pennsylvania. I was really struck by how much of a difference that makes because the president himself cannot utter that word or did not utter that word until after the, the Supreme Court leak. And so I, I I've been thinking a little bit about you know, usually my indeed Marxist position is that, you know, our like discourse and, you know, symbolic stuff doesn't really isn't really the <laughs> you know, the main thing, right? It's sort of it's the yeah. That that that's probably true, right? It's sort of politics and power and you know but on the on the other hand, there's a, you know, the two things can't be cleanly separated and it, it's such a perverse thing in this country that abortion is indeed so illegalized and criminalized and gestating is so is so criminalized given that abortion is actually quite a popular and mass supported thing right and so just having a sort of sense of that public support in the public realm i think is a sort of meaningful form of solidarity obviously there's lots of other things people can do which we can talk about later but um, I get the sense that yeah, there is a, a mass response of um, of willingness to break the law. Doctors, indeed, my doctor, is <laughs> fully getting equipped, you know, and in you know networks to break the law to provide sonograms to people, dilations and curatages, you know, provide abortion pills. You know, it's 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 kind of exciting, I think, on that level. The, the degree of 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 you know of willingness to defy the
1: law. It seems pretty clear that the anti-abortion right were pretty savvy in focusing their efforts on the Supreme Court because it's the American institution which is most insulated from public opinion and, and democratic control. But it is the flip side of that that it becomes the first of those institutions which starts to be discredited, not just in the eyes of the left, but also liberals and and liberal Americans have historically been typically supportive of of, of American uh, institutions?
0: Yeah, (laughs) I am not necessarily always good at like, you know, gauging, like, you know, having my finger on the pulse exactly. But um, it seems to me that there's a large amount of anger against establishment liberals right now again a lot of rage and disgust with the democratic party and let alone the supreme court which i'm seeing way more people saying is illegitimate than i've ever seen before you know the the position that the supreme court should be abolished is no longer a swivel-eyed sort of uh, extremism yeah it's not fringe anymore at all and and, you know and okay for some incomprehensible reason the New York Times persists in doing all kinds of both sidesism and equivocation and you know legitimizing of the of the of the institutions that that handed down this you know atrocity and you know publishing lots of anti-abortion op-eds actually which is sort of really doing nothing for my blood pressure. But I think that in itself, is sort of interesting in terms of its disconnect from, yeah, a populist sort of mood you can feel almost crackling, you know, in the air of like, you know, well, fuck this shit, you know, burn it all down.
1: On the Democrats. So in the 1990s, liberal opinion seemed to pretty uniformly adopt Bill Clinton's safe, legal and rare framing on abortion that both affirmed the right to terminate a pregnancy, but also viewed abortion as always something of a tragedy. So although the rare elements of that formula has increasingly come under attack, it's still even today suggested by some commentators that it was a position that enabled a coalition of people who supported abortion rights that included those who took a more unapologetic position, but also those who viewed abortion as always something quite sad and in some sense to be regretted, even if it was the appropriate course of action. For instance, writing in 2019 in The Atlantic, Caitlin Flanagan wrote that when Hillary Clinton was coming up, the assumption among abortion supporters was that it was the better of two bad decisions, the response to a mistake, and while it should always be legal, inherently a bit sad. And she went on to say regarding younger anti-abortion activists today, Whether they mean to or not, these young women are introducing a purity test where there shouldn't be one, within the community of pro-abortion rights voters. In this new calculus, true believers are welcome, anyone else can find the door. Like so much of progressive politics today, this approach ignores the spectre of the FU vote, the, uh, the vote cast by people who are generally liberal, but have had it up to here with being lectured about the incorrectness of their moral attitudes. What do you make of that kind of perspective?
0: So this kind of argument is, yeah, as about as far away from my own sense of how abortion should be politicized as as you can get. I, I don't think abortion is primarily a question, although it has been absolutely captured by this framing that should be framed as you know bioethical or moral, right? So this this thing that Caitlin is saying about purity tests and and moral beliefs that are kind of a sine qua non of of belonging to the progressive coalition you know it's an error already like I reject the very premise there it's sort of you know this is why I kind of and maybe this is at the moment still quite abstract and and difficult to every case, connect to the struggles on the ground. That's why I insist on having a level of abstraction reintroduced, because the problem goes so deep, right? The problem between me and Caitlin is like, its roots are in the question of what you think gestating is. I think we need to say it is labour. And once you actually internalise that, you know, it, it becomes much easier to sort of expand it into all of the politics of labour, which need to, if you ask me, be sort of anti-work, right? The working class wants to abolish itself as the working class, like, you know, labour is not a moral category, right? I don't want to turn this, I don't want to seed this topic constantly to the sort of bioethical frame. And it's bananas to insist that people do anything really <laughs> um, against their will, right? Uh, forced labour of any kind is surely supposed to be abhorrent, you know, to to anyone really in the 21st century, whatever, you know. And so this, you know, this frame is, is wrong, I think. I'm not willing to believe really that anyone thinks you can win something by apologising for it at the same time. Like, who thinks that? I'm not even a strategically-minded, campaign-experienced person, you know, but I know that you can't, like, get something by saying that it should be rare. Like, surely, who thinks that, you know? The Black feminist and reproductive justice movement poured very much-deserved scorn on the idea that abortion should be safe, legal and rare, which, you know, Bill Clinton's idea, which Hillary Clinton adopted... Although it sounds like, is Caitlin Flanagan saying that Hillary Clinton sort of marked a departure from from safe, legal, and rare?
1: No, I mean she she refers to a moment where Clinton, Hillary Clinton, I mean, doubled down on it and made some. I can't remember which presidential campaign it was around, but she kind of doubled down on it and said something like, "You know, it should be safe, legal, and rare." And when I say rare, I, I mean, mean rare, rare. rare. I mean rare yeah. with
0: capitals. Yeah. <laughs> so rare with capitals isn't enough for Caitlin Flanagan. It has to also be sad inherently a bit sad. Well, no, this is sociologically like an empirically disprovable, right? For example, one book that distills all of the information about what abortion actually produces in terms of sadness or happiness in the world is Erica Miller's Happy Abortions, right? This is not something we need to sort of debate theologically or, or spiritually in this way. This is empirically verifiable. Do abortions produce sadness or happiness? We know this. It is happiness, overwhelmingly. Sorry, I'm, I get very cross with this stuff. Yeah. And I mean, as I say, you know, the reproductive justice movement sort of already laughed safe, legal and rare off the stage. And it sort of became safe, legal and accessible. You know, if, if as a Democrat, you're going to be really radical. <laughs> And, uh, and then it, it sort of got wiped altogether. And now we have the sort of healthcare framing, which I think is a really great thing overall. You know, as I say, the, the reproductive justice pressure from below, largely from the South, from often very low income organizers who are sort of provisioning, um, and coming from and serving their own communities of people who do pregnancy or, or don't, but in any case, Barely access healthcare at all. You know, interestingly, we're the ones to insist on abortion being healthcare, even though no one has healthcare in the U.S., right? It like, and that's the second. That's I think paradoxically what can be so radical about it, right? You can't choose uh, something you you can't get if you don't have access to healthcare because healthcare is privatized, commodified, commercialized, etc. Then that's the problem, isn't it? Abortion becomes sutured to the Medicare for all cause. And that's probably a, a good thing. Although I think you can, in fact, also go further than that. And I I argue that, that we have to. So although it's great that the mainstream discourse is now abortion is a healthcare right. It's a human right because it is healthcare. I think we also need to go even further than that because ultimately we're trying to get people access to something very elemental, very elementary, like the ability to stop doing something they don't want to do. If we can't say that, like, why don't we just give up ultimately? You can't. I really refuse the idea that we get anywhere as a, a coalition by you know throwing trans people under the bus, throwing the wrong kind of abortion getter under the bus right the, the 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 person who wants an abortion for no reason other than she wants an abortion, right? I don't think it helps us to cut people out the the sort of the undeserving the you know the the imperfect victim or whatever the abortion haver who is not, you know, already a mother, who is not, you know, in danger of, you know, losing her health or her life if she carries on, you know, whatever. Like, no, why don't we just say what we want, which is abortion, which is, you know, a beautiful thing. Many abortion doulas treat it as very sacred. It's a wonderful thing, if you think about it, to you know, to embrace this capacity to both say no (laughs) and say yes, you know, to the making of new life, right? If you don't have the no, the yes becomes really quite meaningless. I suppose that gets, as I say, a little bit more abstract, but I do think in a sense that's called for, right? That's called for now because people understand (laughs) that everything has been thrown at the wall in a sense in terms of, campaigning for abortion and it, it hasn't worked you know why don't we have a, a real reset you know and, and think about you know the perhaps quite taboo ways of of vindicating this thing that could be available to us.
1: Going back to that point about abortions typically producing happiness rather than the opposite which is the assumption of course would you want to say that that's in the main the case and that, that in many cases it's sort of complex that it can be a, an experience which does involve something akin to grieving, but which is nonetheless seen as seen as basically beneficial to that person's life.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, to be clear, and I'm really glad you've you know, you've prodded me to, to clarify, I have no desire whatsoever, I think it would be just as bad in a way, to sort of mandate happiness, um, you know, around abortion. That's that's really not a mistake or a misstep I, I, I want to make, right? People might be just as oppressed if they felt like they had to be happy about abortion because they were feminist, you know, as if they're mandated to to, to perform grief as they currently are, you know, in clinics. But uh, yeah, empirically, it's definitely the case that um, people feel relief statistically way more than sadness. And sadness often is very short lived. But whatever. I've raised it because of Caitlin Flanagan's quote about inherently sad. And there is this kind of biopolitical like force behind this performance of inherent sadness that, you know, feminized people yeah have to perform in a patriarchy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think grief is also common and makes sense right i am not about saying let's make fetuses killable right that's paradox that's actually not what what my project is philosophically unfortunately this is a level of nuance that is not easy to manifest on the streets but i think there is a real and tangible difference between saying abortion is okay and saying abortion is good like my piece in the Nation actually got given the title, you know, "abortion is killing," and that's okay. When you know, ironically, what well, I argue, you know, you don't choose your your titles. But actually, what I say in the piece is that I'm actually not really interested in the okay part. I'm not actually sure about the okay part. What I want politically is to be able to push on the good part, right? I don't think many things that we do in this moment in history is okay you know what I mean like there's very few things that I'm happy saying are completely ethically okay and certainly killing an embryo is not something I'm just gonna like sign off with a big green tick as ethically okay forever right what at one point maybe you know in my wildest dreams you know we, we will have reached a sort of a situation where the very dangerous labour of pregnancy is so sophisticatedly, you know, supported and cared for and technologically studied that there are maybe even, you know, alternatives, perhaps ectogenetic kind of ways of, of taking the burden off a, a person for a spell, or tweaking the placenta so that it eats you up less. <laughs> and is less dangerous to have working inside you you know um, and in that case you know perhaps a new ethics would become available you know where not killing embryos becomes something you know much as not eating chickens or whatever that should really be taken seriously on a mass scale right for now I don't I don't think the right not to be killed of embryos or fetuses is high up on any list of mine you know but it's not it's not really about sort of saying like for me this is just a clump of cells put it in the bin uh, who cares that's not that's not my argument right I'm going
1: to ask another strategic question. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so if one takes that position, if one says, OK, indeed, abortion is killing, but it is it is the appropriate and right thing to do. And it should entirely be at the be the decision of the person who is pregnant to make that decision or not make that decision. You know, I imagine that many would say that taking that position provides ammunition to the anti-abortion movement who can then say, and doubtless they already do say, uh, you know, look at these people. They admit it. they They admit that they're killers
0: hmm. Yeah, sure. They were saying that before.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> I was saying that. And they were saying that. And they're saying that now. I don't man- mean to sound glib, but I don't really see <laughs> how it's really any actual provision of ammunition to my enemies, you know, to, to suggest this kind of more full throated and unapologetic framing in favour of bringing abortion to the people. Because I think about this a lot. I'm not being disingenuous when I say like, we can't feed the truth to them, right? They're not wrong that abortion kills. Of course it does. It's literally the point. You don't want this thing to be alive inside you anymore. So you scrape it out, which kills it. Like that is what an abortion is. Abortion doulas, people who actually give people abortions, and I have some, you know, experience of this, are not so terrified of that observation, right? I think having the truth as part of your platform is 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 an advantage, right? (laughs) Like I draw a distinction obviously between killing and murder, right? That's that's something that gets lost, right? You can't you can't murder something that isn't a person and a fetus is absolutely not a person. So that seems to me to be in a sense the hinge of this fight. It doesn't matter to the enemies who have fet... You know, to our enemies. They, they, they will immediately collapse back, killing and murder, because they fetishize fetal life to a point that is, you know, truly ghoulish and, I think, inseparable from the, you know, the bizarre sort of ideology of the frontier that is foundational to this settler colony, you know, this sort of absolute innocence. And, yeah, anyway, they want fetuses to be patients and, and persons in law, but they're wrong. Like... <laughs> Maybe we could start saying that, you know, instead of apologetically and euphemistically performing special pleading to have access to this kind of course correction, right? This like, as Caitlin Flanagan was suggesting, like, uh, you know, this, this lesser of two bad decisions or whatever. Yeah, I mean, and it does all, you know, let's not forget, right? It does actually rely on a pretty like puritanical, again, this is the settler colony DNA, like uh, a puritanical sexual ethics, like it's becoming audible again, right? People are saying once again, that women should keep their legs shut, right? This is in the New York Times op-ed pages, this is this is sort of everywhere. Like if you aren't willing, you know, to risk your life with a pregnancy, you know, then don't have sex you little slut, right? This is an audible um, mainstream idea, again, in
1: 2022. On the idea of the proto-person, so, you know, obviously, one of the sort of key lines of attack of, of anti-abortion people is the idea that there's a sort of arbitrary distinction between a person and a fetus. So would I be right in thinking that you draw the distinction in terms of dependency, that the proto-person, as you put it, is, is entirely dependent on one person, and that person, if they don't want to be pregnant, are in, as you say, in a position of, of forced or, or, or coerced labor. Whereas post birth, that's no longer the case because there's the possibility of adoption, there's the possibility of different models of care, which might involve, say, extended families and so on. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think we're all interdependent, right? That's, um, that's something you may remember from having me on uh, for full surrogacy now. I talk about like, kind of foundationally to my vision of utopian practice, but, you know, this can be very disingenuously used to argue that, you know, there is some sort of obligation to care for a fetus inside one's body. Yeah, I I think basically you did sum it up correctly. When a baby has been born, you know, they are extremely dependent and helpless, but the care that they require can be provided by any number of people, right? When a fetus is described as, you know, uh, helpless and dependent, that's true. It's also not necessarily like a, a moral claim in and of itself to having that care fulfilled, right? I think care in a way is, I mean, yeah, maybe this is now getting a bit too theoretical again for your liking, but I think, I think, that you know, care is romanticized too much on the left, I think. Like, the part that we don't like to say is that, you know, this isn't some kind of like zero-sum argument. It's a sort of dialectical one. When we when we say we need a care economy or like a society that really values care, like, okay, absolutely. But sometimes this becomes almost like a policy demand for simply more care. And I think this really frustrates me because there's all kinds of care. There's all kinds of care happening. You know, social reproduction, as Marxists call it, functions for capital and it cares for people to the extent that in a sense like it will still allow capital to function, right? That care is often bad. Like, what about the things that are currently being cared for for the wrong reasons and in the wrong way? I don't think care per se is this thing that should be kind of invoked, like, ah, you know, you you should care for the fetus. Like why? No, you know, the reality of social reproductive life is so much Darker and weirder and uh, more complex than that, right? We really do. This is the sort of almost the, the, the flip side of the bizarre valorization of, of maternal sacredness by the sort of Christo fascist, like capitalist regime. It's like, no, really, we have power to give one another breath and to give one another shape and life, you know? And that means that we are often choosing to not right? It, it, it necessarily means that.
1: Because capacities are, are limited, and they're especially limited under capitalist social relations.
0: Again, I don't think it is a, a sort of like a, a zero sum or some kind of like Malthusian argument. Like, I think there is sort of desire in play. I think desire is a good enough reason. If you do not want to care for someone, you will not, right? You do not have to. And that should, that should be part of what we celebrate, I think, in a way. But I think actually, you know, this makes me sound quite like traditional, almost like rad femme. Like the reason this is impossible to swallow is because of the maternal, and I mean that in a gender kind of inclusive way, but like the gestational sort of maternal authority, like the creative power that that it implies right it's truly up to a gestator whether or not a person is created like that is actually the thing that this misogynist society cannot fathom i think cannot accept it's scary it's really scary
1: yes i mean do you think that because that's so sort of deeply rooted that that perhaps leads into the sort of line of argument whereby it's kind of suggested that in in some sort of post-capitalist utopia Everything changes, and, and actually, but you know because we would be able to provide much better health care, there'd be all sorts of sort of social support that that would change the moral calculus when it comes to abortion, and perhaps you don't think it should really because it should the sort of bodily autonomy issue it shouldn't be overturned by those material circumstances necessarily.
0: Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. That's a really interesting question, and I would like to remain open, right. I don't want this any of this to become dogma. like I'd love to see the world in which domination has been destroyed, you know patriarchal domination, Catholic sort of violence, bodily unfreedom, carceralism, criminalization have been you know destroyed enough that we begin to glimpse what it might be like for beings you know I begin to sound quite hippie at this point you know non-humans and humans have some sort of meaningful degree of interdependent sort of autonomy and and flourishing and then yeah I don't know what would I feel like you know in a world in which species coexist you know responsibly you know would I feel like embryos deserve care maybe I remain sort of open-minded about this But yeah, I think it's a pretty important thing to study the current. I'd like to think it might even be tweakable because, you know, all sorts of things about natural human biology are, in fact, tweaked all the time to benefit us. But, you know, to study the current biology of placentation, right, of human pregnancy is, I think, necessarily to appreciate that, you know, (laughs) this is something it's pretty mad to imagine asking someone to do against their will it's deeply damaging and dangerous and injurious to the human body and a lot of people in fact have been saying I think in the conversation at the moment that they are just gobsmacked to learn about all that grisly fascinating reality about pregnancy because they thought that abortion was the thing that was dangerous Abortion is, you know, many hundred times less risky than pregnancy. And we're in this era where some groups are trying to be pro-choice and activist by brandishing those old coat hangers, right, from the 60s and 70s era of abortion struggle. And that's actually really detrimental and counterproductive right now because we're in a completely different era. And abortion is not deadly or dangerous just by virtue of being illegal today, and criminalization sort of always does increase the danger and the likelihood that people will will have abortions with complications and perhaps even fatal ones right but it's but not comparable se- yeah it's not comparable self managed abortions are already illegal even though they're safer than you know taking an aspirin in a way <laughs> and they're more e- and
1: they're completely effective A friend and a listener of the show he was responding to the article you wrote and so what he asked was if we imagine say that a child is born of an unwanted pregnancy and there is nobody who wants to care for that child so that any care that then takes place is also coerced in the way that an unwanted pregnancy is coerced does that and you know is a pretty inflammatory sort of question but the question he was asking was does that legitimize infanticide
0: no bloody hell (laughs) you know this is a great argument for family abolition isn't it like we should absolutely be deprivatizing care so that nobody is forced to depend on on individual volition to a great extent right for their care like this is actually a you know okay (laughs) i reacted with irritation but in a sense you know i'm willing to say great question (laughs) does it does this not in fact um sort of point us you know, to the problem with 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 the privatised model of, of kinship care. By the way, I have a book coming out on October 4th called <laughs> Abolish the Family, A Manifesto for Care and Liberation, which basically stems from people asking for clarification off the back of 2019, full surrogacy now, which I, you know, did not expect anyone to read. And uh, it, it panned out quite differently. People wanted to know about the family abolition component of that book. And I've tried to clarify it. And, you know, in a sense, the the connection between the sort of gestational or what I would maybe pompously call sort of anthrogenetic, right, dimensions of life-making labour, like anthrogenesis means sort of like manufacturing the human right i use that word partly to show that that we could expand it as a category beyond a simple and literal pregnancy but you know the connections between that and you know the private nuclear household could you know can be fleshed out i hope other people are inspired to to help me do that but yeah in a sense this this um phantasmatic sort of unwanted child whom nobody wants to look after and who i suppose this question wants to know you know Someone who, by the way, would be justified in killing them, <laughs> like which, since there is no carer uh, who who is who's got the commit... motivation to do that, who, yes. yeah. yeah, which is you know maybe one of several objections one might, my... but yeah, uh, no, but this is not simply a phantasmatic child, right? Yeah, queer children get you know dispossessed and evicted all the time, right? <laughs> children whom no one wants to care for are very much among us, you know, and all of us, I would argue, are care deprived to an extent and that doesn't mean that we simply embrace a politics of you know more care all the world needs is care care and more care it's actually what kinds of care organized how and on what model like private or common right what about the the utopian but also quite like mainstream and seriously considered at certain points in in recent history you know architectural or urbanist policy proposals for minimizing the number of individual kitchens in a city, right? What about kitchens being sort of reinvented as something that are not usually inside people's private abodes, but are usually in the public sphere? What about doing the same with washing machines, (laughs) laundries, you know, what about making the care that people receive, usually or by default, something that, that can be in common and from a, you know a public body or series of bodies of some kind rather than being tethered so so deeply to the sort of dyad of of mummy and daddy or maybe just one parent, you know? I think that is a, a an adequate answer to that question actually. So I don't I don't regret being asked it.
1: Going back to the idea of, of an unwanted pregnancy as forced labor, so in this case as you say, you know, the product of that labor is life. Now, of course, I think, you know, many people would find the comparison with other forms of work surprising or counterintuitive, because, of course, this, you know, this would seem to them to be a product of a very different kind to other forms of, of labour. And therefore, the sort of comparison of coerced labour in another more sort of typical work context wouldn't really apply in the case of pregnancy. Can you explain why you think it, it does work as a, as a comparison?
0: Yeah, there's a sort of, you know, uh, a real naturalization of all kinds of reproductive work under capitalism, but probably also beyond capitalism to an extent. I tend to be interested in specific in, you know, our current historic situation, which is the, the capitalist sort of use of this naturalization of reproductive labor that makes it appear as Non-labor. So, what you know? What do I mean by reproductive labor? I mean wages for housework. In this radical campaign of you know, nineteen seventy, was interested in sort of centering it around housework, the ensemble of sort of life remaking or making activities that take place in the so-called social factory, right? The home, which they wanted to point out, was like another site in the in the circuits of accumulation that include the sort of the factory, right? The, there's the factory and the social factory. And they listed among these activities, you know, not just feeding the worker, emotionally comforting him so he can go back to work the next day. And it's not necessarily a he. Rearing children, keeping a clean house, you know, cooking, but also gestating. Silvia Federici has changed her politics on on pregnancy, but at the time she was saying every miscarriage is a workplace accident, which means that gestating itself is a sort of, makes its own workplace, right? Anywhere where we are, pregnant, we are in a sort of gestational workplace. I think this is not just rhetorical, it is true because of our historic circumstances as humans in capitalism, who are organised according to a reproductive division of labour, you know, into often unpaid workers, you know, and this, this sort of dispensation is very gendered, even if it's not always, you know, mapped onto people who are in fact divided in a sex dyadic way, right? But but the division itself is very gendered that says, you know, that, that certain types of work are not work, and they're naturalized as such, as I keep saying. So looking at that and resisting it is a very difficult cognitive task, right? These stories about what is and isn't work go very deep. They're unconscious, like it's extremely difficult, I think, to undo the sense that labours of love are not, you know, simply like non-work, you know, something other. It it goes against every, you know, fibre of our sort of cultural education to, and it makes us cry out, you know, and object, like how can, you know, I, you know, I love my kids, right? Like it's not work to look after them, right? But this is a sort of misunderstanding of the category of work, right? It's the thing that I'm always, trying to elucidate is is that there's no attempt here to deny that labors of love might involve love it's actually that's actually the problem like the the problem is that that labor is being stolen and turned into work and then also devalued as non-work by capitalism and like yeah you know it's particularly tricky with pregnancy literal pregnancy because it takes place inside the body 24 7 including when you're asleep and it you know it's something you can't back out of very easily and so it doesn't in fact resemble many other forms of of work although i'd argue that there are points of comparison with other forms of of work you know you can perhaps think of forms of work that are difficult to simply stop or are sort of hooked up to machines of extraction or arranged spatially on production lines that you can't step back from without risk of injury or that you are in a sense performing when you're not entirely consciously doing so you know there are all kinds of ways we're producing value (laughs) but you know uh, with our social media habits our sort of leisure our consumption work is a very tricky category to nail down I think perhaps especially in recent decades right and so I think it's not it's not so controversial to propose that something that has elements of conscious guidedness, right? Because a lot of pregnant people are really quite consciously sort of shaping the process, right? And elements of of unconsciousness is still work, right? But I mean, definitionally, I guess it's less important to to split hairs about that than it is to understand that you know, you know what Marx was really on about when he defined labor carefully. And, you know, sparking a, a trillion Marxological debates about the value form, I think was really quite simple. Sort of the, the, the perversity of our, you know, our societies is that the most important activities are ones that are invisibilized as labour, right? And I, I think that's, you know, that's sort of the fundamental thing as well. It's like, I don't mean to moralise work, but I mean to pass through identifying gestating as, as real and important labour in order to, to imagine, you know, but like giving it the respect it deserves and potentially also rejecting the parts of it or loosening the grip of the parts of it that are currently really quite lethal and injurious to the people who undertake it, Right. It's like it's it's on many different levels. I think that that it makes sense both as a sort of workplace safety question. Like l- let us insist that no type of labour should cost three hundred thousand lives a year, right? Which is what you know pregnancy costs, right? And then you know millions more injured permanently. But but also because currently in a work society, it's by describing something as work. That we make the first step towards recognition and respect, that perhaps then then later will enable us to struggle against against
1: work. Before we be finish, I mean, I was I was wondering if there were any particular resources on abortion rights and and supporting people who are trying to get a safe abortion that you might recommend, and also how listeners outside of the outside of the US might be able to support those efforts uh, too.
0: Yeah. So. Well, there's a whole, you know, efflorescence of resources right now. And (laughs) there's a lot to pick from. A really obvious one is the National Abortion Federation, the NAF, which is the Professional Association of Abortion Providers in the US. They help with abortion and travel fees if people are eligible. That's a good organisation to point people towards if You know, for any reason, you know, someone who needs to get an abortion um, in the state, in a state where it's not accessible to them. There's also the National Network of Abortion Funds. You can follow on Twitter at, um, at Abortion Funds. And they are good as well because they hook people up with clinics that will take abortion fund money, if that makes sense. They don't have usually eligibility requirements and uh, yeah those two i mean the yellow hammer fund is a great fund to give your money to the the frontera fund i mean i could i could you know i could just keep listing and listing but yeah the Bridget alliance helps people travel also just on a more sort of ambient basis uh, spread the word that abortion is very safe don't boost the sort of strange organizations that are using spectacular tactics with clothes hangers and blood spattered white trousers that's really counterproductive you know let people know abortion funds are very effective they've been operating in the u.s for decades they know how to cooperate with clinics and each other Thousands of pregnant people have have had abortions this way. Yeah, an abortion is not deadly or dangerous just because it's illegal. Yeah, and um, fuck the haters. Uh, They consider dying in childbirth to be the utmost sacrifice, right? That's a really important thing to understand. Like, in this Christo-fascist country, dying in childbirth is, in a sense, the best, most worthwhile thing that a woman can do. That's a real belief. And it goes back to antiquity, in a sense. Although it's sort of packaged in a in a specifically settler colonial puritanical way, they're the people making the laws, but we are the people looking after one another. They cannot stop abortion. It's been happening ever since humans existed. This is in in essence. I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say a prison and police abolitionist fight. Right? It is just another facet. Well, it's not just. It is another facet of the overwhelming struggle for abolition um, that kicked off with the uprising for black lives in 2020. The the main thing that, that, that this, you know, concretely means rather than thousands and thousands of sort of dead women which is the sort of sensational headline it's actually you know thousands and thousands of people in jail right it's 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 carceralism it's incarceration it's it's over policing it's criminalization it's lives rendered unlivable through surveillance and fear and yeah and so follow the abolitionists you know make those links understand that it's going to be cops shopping and arresting people for exercising their bodily autonomy as gestators and insist on, on real horizons rather than whatever the Democratic Party is offering.
1: I mean, you describe the United States as, as Christo-fascist and and there's been this very long, not always particularly helpful debate on the left about whether it makes sense to describe the politics of the right today as as fascist or authoritarian or or proto-fascist or or something something else. But maybe the more sort of important question is is, you know, how everyone describes this politics is the breadth of it and how deep rooted it is. You know, I think a decision like the reversal of Roe versus Wade can lead into that sense that we're in straightforwardly reactionary moment that we're tending towards certain forms of, of reaction of, of the past, which perhaps misses some of the novelty of, of the contemporary right. But at the same time, as you say, you know, we're living in the moment of Black Lives Matter. On a global level, we've seen victories for abortion rights in Ireland and Argentina. So yeah, what's your view on, on sort of the breadth of the anti-abortion position and, and sort of how optimistic are you about the political situation or not?
0: Yeah, I suppose I'm pretty pessimistic about electoral-led change. But abortion is one of the things in America that it's actually quite fun and sort of raises your spirits to go door knocking about or whatever, because people totally like abortion. They want abortion. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody hates these dorks. You know, everybody knows someone who, who wants an abortion. Everybody thinks that if someone needs an abortion, they should have an abortion. I mean, okay, obviously there are really well-funded theocratic nutbags with, who carry fetuses around with them, or wear little feet around their necks, and they're they they have they're disproportionately represented in power, and in the New York Times op-ed pages for some reason. But, you know, you're right, Christo-fascist country, what does that mean? In the ways that those particular forces are sort of going from strength to strength right now. Yeah, and in the way that the existing sort of oligarchical, sort of inert, you know, electoral democratic apparatus is, is, is absolutely incapable of doing anything about it. Yeah, in terms of what people are, you know, actually believe, you know, abortion is actually one of these things that, that there's a total disconnect between the grassroots and the ruling class.
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.